Sometimes you just can't pigeonhole somebody because of the breadth of their skills, compassion and understanding is just too varied. Magdalene Adonike is one such person, founder and CEO of Music Relief Foundation. Magdalene is an award-winning entrepreneur, musician, inspirational speaker, business mentor and fellow with the Royal Society of Arts. Music Relief was born out of her own personal experience as a teenage mum, shunned from the very community she loved and blocked from participating in the music that made her feel alive. Magdalene had the desire, drive and determination to ensure that the disadvantaged kids in South London have their own platforms where they can share their stories, be engaged and encouraged through mentoring, music and workshops to attain the life skills and leadership roles not found through conventional routes. Life crime is the scourge of our beautiful city right now and through facilitated workshops and intervention programs, Magdalene is leaving her very own wonderful legacy. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. Before we meet this week's wonderful guest, here's a little something for you. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. Okay, well, here we are today in Croydon in South London. It's not a place your London Legacy has visited too often south of the river. I don't know, I feel I get a bit of a nosebleed sometimes when I come, come down <laughs> I think South Londoners say the same thing about coming to North London as well, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah, I think yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. But I'm I'm delighted to be here. I'm with Magdalene Adenike. Yes. Have I said that correctly? Yes, Magdalene. Magdalene. Adenike, yes. Adenike. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Nearly got it right. A little bit of practice. <laughs> but I, as I always say, I always ask my guests, but I don't want to offend anybody by getting it wrong. And with a name like Steve Lazarus, I'm, no, I'm used to people getting my name wrong. Lazarou, Nazareth. Straightforward. Well, yes, you'd have, you'd have thought so, but no. I mean, it's a fairly biblical sort of uh, origin, yeah. so you would have thought we'd get it right. But hey ho! Anyway, we got off. We got that off to a, yes. a good start. So I'm <laughs> delighted to be here. So how to introduce um, Magdalene? So Magdalene is the CEO of Music Relief or Music Relief Foundation, I think, to yes. give it its full title. Yes. Magdalene is an award-winning entrepreneur, a musician. Yes, I guess a tick tick, <laughs> uh, an author. Yes. Inspirational speaker, business mentor. Yep. Still part of the Sherry Blair Mentor Foundation? Yes. Yeah, cool. We're not going to talk about politics today, so that's that's Mm-mm. fine. No, no, no. <laughs> Brexit. And a fellow of the Soci- Royal Society of Arts as well. Yes, I am. And that's just briefly encapsulating. That's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> that doesn't go dive down into some of the detail. But that's what we're here for today, Magdalene, is mm-hmm. to talk about your inspirational, motivational, personal story and how you've used that to build... Is it a charity? Um, it's now a charity. It is yes. a charity. We're char- full charitable status. We're officially a charity. Okay, so we're obviously going to talk about the wonderful work you're doing mm-hmm. in Croydon, which I think people will appreciate is, what should we say, a, de- a deprived area, an underprivileged area? What would you call it? The, those are the words that do fly around when you when they, when people speak about Croydon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just briefly mention to us, in a, in general terms, what Music Relief Foundation is, and then we'll find out a little bit about how you got into it okay so music relief foundation is a youth charity Mm. and the idea is about working with young people 11 plus about um, empowering them 
supporting them, helping them to reconnect with their society and their community. And most especially, it's about the development of a balanced well-being. Mm. So, obviously, very honourable ideals there. Mm -hmm. What is it from your past, from your upbringing, that led you to realise that you wanted to do something for the younger generation? What is it in your upbringing? Just as we were talking before we obviously yeah. started and just talking about how you started your mm. podcast, yeah. similar things with me. I wasn't admitted to hospital. Okay. But what happened was that I was a teen mom, so my eldest child is coming up 21 in a couple of months' time. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I'd never guessed that looking at you. <laughs> so that time, almost 21 years ago now, found myself pregnant in school. I wasn't born in this country, coming from Nigeria, so African parentage and uh -huh. heritage. Come to the UK for greener pastures as a young lady. And then years went by in secondary school, coming to the end of secondary school in sixth form, found myself pregnant. So when you look at that, you look at my parents who are pastors and the fact that I'm African or already everything was against me, uh -huh. the odds were against me. So... I went through the motion of being a teenager, falling pregnant, and also being within the church setting. Okay, not a, not a good combination. Not a good combination at all. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I was in the choir at that time, and the pastor's wife at the church we were attending at that time, saw, the, saw it fit to come to me as this teenager who was going through all these motions and obviously you've got your pregnancy hormones going up and down already to tell me that I was a disgrace. I remember that vividly wow. as if it was happening So yesterday. you were what, 15, 16? No, 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 I was about 17. 17. Yeah, so okay. she said to me, oh, you're a disgrace, you're polluting the altar. Did she say that to you privately or in a public forum? Um, so we'd finished church uh -huh. and um, we were outside and um, as you do, just kind of talking and networking with yes. everybody before you go home after church that day. And then, yeah, she came to me. I don't know if other people heard it because she didn't uh -huh. say, can I talk to you privately? So she didn't pull you to one side? No, 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 no. no. It yes. was just, she spoke to me. So people were around. So uh -huh. if somebody else heard it, they never said anything to right. me and told me that I was a disgrace and that I was polluting the altar. So how did she get to know? I mean, was it already public knowledge at this, this point in time? I was showing at that time. Right. And... I don't know if my parents would have told her, but I was obviously showing. So, yeah. Mm. So she felt it fit to t inform me of this information. Yeah. And um, so you can imagine. So my parents already were very, very upset. My mom especially, may have so rest in peace now. But she was extremely upset. So prior to her finding out, or to them finding out, I'd already tried to abort the child twice beforehand. And then when she found out, because she was so angry and because of that whole stigma and the shame that it was going to bring to the family, it was a case of let's abort the child. Sorry, so she they wanted you to abort it previously or you'd had previous No, attempts? I had tried you to had abort. Yourself? Myself, because I didn't want them to Not find out. Not medically done, just tried it yourself no, 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 in your to be go bedroom to the, or something or privately? No, 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 no to go to, actual, to the abortion clinic to right. abort the... So why had that not? worked or had not come about i could not go through with it oh so you okay so you didn't actually do the procedure no no no, no i didn't i didn't so i i thought about it i can't remember if i actually booked the appointments to actually turn up at uh -huh. the clinics but when my mom then found out she then said we needed to go on a board so that's when i remember vividly that we actually booked the appointment i can remember the actual clinic I actually drove past there on sunday mm. so i had to remember the actual clinic that we booked for but when the time came 
neither one of us could go through it. Was that for religious reasons or was that just a personal emotional block that um, meant you couldn't go through with it? I guess it was a mixture of both. Mm. Religious, what would be the outcome? Would I have lost my life? Would would it be a case that maybe that would have been the only child I would have ever had? Mm. And then going through it, something went wrong and yeah. never been able to have any more children. Yeah. So it was a mixture of several things. But for me, wanting to have the abortion was primarily because of the fact that, oh, my God, I've brought the shame to my to my parents. Uh-huh. I don't want to disgrace them. Right. So let me try and abort it so that at least nobody finds out. Mm-hmm. That was my thinking. And then when she found out, I know fully well that she was very angry, extremely angry. It was a case of wanting to please her and say, okay, whatever this woman wants me to do, just to please her, I will go through with it. Yeah. How did she express her anger? How did your parents express their anger to you? So my dad at the time was an evangelist. So at the time when the pastor had informed me the fact that I was disgracing and polluting the altar, my dad was in America at that time. And so but prior to him traveling and prior to the pregnancy, he had called me and said to me that called me and sat at home and said to me that he had a dream and he saw me pregnant and I just kind of laughed it off and said but I wasn't pregnant at that time so it obviously didn't happen so he was angry but my mom was the one that was even more vocal than he was Uh and so I remember before he prior to him traveling to America so he had gone for two months he said to me whatever she tells you to do for the sake of peace to reign in the house do it I don't know if that was to say if she told you to abort, I don't know. She's now dead, so I can't go back mm-hmm. and say. But yeah, so, but she was very verbal about it in a sense. So she was extremely upset. You, the name calling and you've brought shame to the family and all the rest of it. So that was very, very known and heard. Mm. Do you remember the moment when you actually told them and the, 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 the fear, I, fear she, building up she to She was approaching me, asking me things like, when was the last time you had your period? Why would she, <laughs> did she have her, you know, this is the mother, mother's intuition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was saying, when was the last time you had your period? I was like, oh, last week or yeah, something yeah. along those lines. But she kept going on. Then she then finally said, no, we need to go to the GP. And so um, she went ahead and booked the appointment. And I remember, I think a day or actually on the day, I called up the GP and said, listen, um, because of patient, um, doctor-patient confidentiality, please do not let her know that obviously I'm pregnant. So we went to the GP. I was in the room, but it just felt like my body, I was there, but I wasn't really there because I was just kind of sat at the corner and it was my mom and the GP that were kind of going backwards and forwards. My mom saying, I'm, I'm here because I know my daughter is pregnant. I want you to do a pregnancy test. And the GP is saying, I can't do that. Did she give the consent? She, why would you say that? So the GP was trying to do everything she possibly could to not to, to put her to, off. To put her off. But yeah. my mom was a very active She wasn't having woman. it. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't. I, I used to call her, we, oh, yeah, I used to call her the Margaret Thatcher of our family because she was that tough. The Iron Lady. <laughs> yes. The Iron Lady indeed. Yeah, yes. Wow. So, yeah. She wasn't relenting until finally the GP, I think this must have gone on for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. <laughs> the GP just looked at me like, help me I don't know what to do and I remember my, that corner that I was at at that point in time that's when I just kind of came to myself and said you know what I just shouted out, just tell her that's what I said and that's when the GP informed her uh-huh. much well yeah wow. were you in a steady relationship at the time what is a steady relationship yeah. at 17 years old yeah, yeah no yeah. true well yeah. Yeah, oh. I, I, I was very fortunate because I wasn't still still had the same partner. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, unusual. So, yeah, for me, it was a case of um, never having a boyfriend, never 
kissing a boy and never, never having that talk of that sex talk. And then all of a sudden you're in school, you're not, you're very strict parented, you're not allowed to go out. So you go out to school and go to church or go out with family, but you can't go out like many young people do. To seeing this boy in school, in my book, I relate, I refer to him as a boy in the bra- with the brown eyes and um, a friend actually liking him but I didn't notice him until she then told me, she said, can you speak to him for me? So never having that whole thing of, I'm wanting to look for a boyfriend in school. It was never in my agenda. So it was in the process of me going to him and speaking to him about the friend that he turned around to me and said, actually, I like you. I was like, okay. (laughs) So I've never had this before. So, but we started some form of a relationship that I just felt that it's, yeah. We just started and there was never a communication. Okay, we're going to lead to sex. Mm. It, again, it just happened. We bunked off school. These days now, if your child is not in school, obviously they send a text or anything. But then at that time, 20 years ago, <laughs> it wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and one thing led to another. I had sex the first time and then it just continued and stuff like I remember the, after the first time, because of the pain, I said to myself, never again. Right. <laughs> never again. But then it consequently happened and never thinking that by doing this, it would lead to pregnancy or sexually transmitted diseases. It was never in my mind. Was sex education part of the curriculum in your school um, back in uh, Nigeria? No, no, here in the UK. I was in secondary school. You yeah. were pregnant here, yes, I beg your pardon. Yes, not in Nigeria. Yes, no, okay, no. sorry. No, 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 no. It was here in the UK. So I, when did you come over to the UK? I came to the UK when I was 10. Okay. I was going on 11 on that same right. year. So I finished off the remaining six months thereabouts of primary school and then started secondary school. So this was back in 1992. Right, right. So I started. So I'm guessing sex education wasn't, um, you, you missed it. I think we did, but I think it was more of periods. Yeah. I remember when... I can vividly remember, well, not vividly, just kind of somehow remember the teachers talking about condoms and the banana and putting the condom on, but yeah. Always the banana. (laughs) Exactly. And then I think we talked more of periods more than any other thing. So Uh it just was one of those subjects that you just have and then, okay, we've done it. That's it. So yeah, it wasn't a situation that I ever, ever imagined that, okay, this by doing such a thing, this is what's going to happen. So even when I felt pregnant, I didn't know that I was pregnant. It was later on, he said to me, um, you need to go to the chemist and you need to get something called a morning after pill. He was the one telling me to do Mm. this because I'm like, why? So it's when I got to the chemist and the chemist said, do you know what that is? And I told him, he was the one that explained it to me. I was like, huh? (laughs) So, but then he said, okay, when was the last time you did this? He said, you have to do this, but you have a short window of time to be able to take this tablet. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you've passed that window. Wow, okay. So your options were were limited after that? My options were very, very limited. So what I had, unlike other women, where they would be vomiting and all the rest of it was just severe headaches. And so I was having these headaches nonstop. And I was was getting quite angry because I'm like, I'm taking paracetamol. I'm taking all all this. this, this, Why am I having these headaches? I don't understand. Until finally, just kind of after the, obviously the chemist scenario and all the rest of it, that we eventually went to the hospital, myself and himself. And then they were like, okay, you are... I think about six weeks pregnant by this time. It's mm. like, oh Lord. Yeah. Wow. So you obviously went through with the pregnancy. And went through with the pregnancy. Your, your yeah. son? Yes, he's, son? yes, son, my son. He's, like I said, he's 20 now, going on 21. Yeah. So it was, um, I think, about six months pregnant 
after the whole let's abort, let's not abort, mm-hmm. that my mom finally turned around. I remember the way she turned around in the house one day, I was still wearing my normal clothes, trying to fit in normal clothes with an expanding belly. And then she looked at me, she was like, you look ridiculous. Can't uh-huh. this boy buy you maternity wear? Right. Because he's not working, uh-huh. <laughs> not working. So yeah, that's when things just kind of turn around right. and she started to buy stuff. And so when she the was baby still came, at school at this point, yes, I was um, at um, sixth form. Mine, uh-huh. so I was going to sixth form, pregnant. How did that go down with the other kids you were hanging around um, with? You? So some were quite supportive. And funny enough, I say to people, I don't know. There must have been something in the water because most of the girls in the same year of me that finished, most of them found themselves pregnant as well. But not none of them were in school. It was just me coming into school. And uh-huh. because I went to the same sixth form, so we had many people that transferred over to the sixth form. Some had dropped out of school and stuff. So there was that level of support mm-hmm. yeah, from the friendship group. Because even prior to my parents finding out, I remember one of, a close friend of mine saying to me, do you want me to come home with you to tell your parents about this pregnancy? And I remember I looked at her and I said, you're Nigerian. I'm Nigerian. How do you think that's going to go down? And she's like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So when you had the, 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 the boy, the mm-hmm. baby boy, mm-hmm. what's his name? His name is Aaron. Aaron. Yeah. Good name. Aaron. Lazarus. <laughs> good, good biblical names. I like it. <laughs> You, you remained in the in the family home still for a, for a period of time. Or, yeah, I yeah. remained in the family yeah. home. So my mom literally she took over. She literally because I've never I never prior to that time carried a baby, yeah. changed a nappy. Do you know? So thereafter, your mom was very good. And she very was very hands on in everything. Yeah. I was in the hospital, came home, came back home to the family home, and yeah, I was there. People at some point, as a boy was growing up and everything, because he became very close. My mom became very attached to him. Uh-huh people began to think that he was my younger brother. Right. Even as he was growing up because he was always with grandparents. He, yeah. Right. And that concern that she had for disgracing the family and that you all had, did that dissipate? Did that disappear with time or did you get that? With, with time, it did disappear. Sideways but, looks. Yeah, no, no. With time, with time, because you had many of their friends, because obviously, like I said, they were pastors or they are pastors. Many of the friendship group were also kind of the same. You had many of them like, you know, that whole sniggering, some in your face, some behind your back that you mm. hear people talk about. And there was a lot of sniggering about it and all the rest of it, wanting to keep their kids away so that you don't kind of pollute their children. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so, yeah, but um, I think where the turnaround came about was some years later when a particular pastor, friend of my parents, similar thing happened to her daughter. And so it was a case of what do I do now? So now I'm now in a sense coming to that point of can you help? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now I'm the one to help. Mm. But at that time, I was the scorn of the earth and everybody, I had a plague or something and everybody turned their backs on me. But, sure. Yeah. So do you think it's <clears throat> all those formative uh, experiences that you had helped you become the person you are today and so far as setting up the foundation and the charity? Most definitely yeah. because I'm when in setting up the organization, it's coming from a place of empathy because I can definitely empathize. So even when after everything happened and being told I could no longer sing publicly, so the relief in a sense of the music relief was that point of not singing publicly, but it's like taking 
life from me because you've told you've told me I can't sing properly. So who sing. told you that and why why well, did they say that? Well, that pastor's wife when she told me that I couldn't because I was only singing in the um, in the church at that time in that particular church. Right. So she banned you in effect from yeah. from, from singing as part yeah, of the choir. Yeah. So I was still coming to church but I could just not be in the choir. So for me that was like okay, that's my life. Yeah. And singing and music had always been part of your yeah. upbringing as mm-hmm. a child. Were your parents musical or involved in um, choirs yeah. and church choirs? They 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 were both, I, th- I think that it's not both, but my dad was definitely part of the choir when we were back home. Mm. I think even before they had us, whilst they were growing up, they were. So there was definitely, um, they were always singing. And myself and my younger sister, when we came to this country, in the different churches we went to as we were growing up, they were, every time they had an event, they would always push myself and my younger sister, go and sing, go and sing. And mm. so, yeah, it would always be singing. And so when that lady told me that I couldn't do that, so it was bad enough that you're still going to church and you can't sing. But so I only found the relief I could get was listening to music in my closet when I'm in closet in the bedroom at yeah. home, uh-huh. not being able. So it was very much the cassette tape and just rewinding it and learning the lyrics of the songs those days because you're writing it down and singing in front of the mirror. That, yeah. <laughs> the mirror was my audience. So. so that's where you got your like emotional and spiritual relief was through through your music yeah yeah, yeah. just playing it and yeah. singing it in your in, to yourself to myself yes yeah. no, there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> but there must have, there must i'm trying to understand where the point was because a lot of people have unfortunate difficult upbringings for example mm-hmm. some people don't see them as such they because mm-hmm. they're their mindset mm-hmm. so what was it what was the tipping point to you that said I, i've got to give back i feel that's what i'm destined to do i need to turn my negatives so, into a positive um, for other people after having a child in 99 9 years later is it yeah 9 years later i had to so i'm fast tracking so many of these mm. things you can find more of it in my book <laughs> From shame to from shame to strength, music saved me. Just kind of doing a little plug there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find it on, on Amazon. <laughs> I've checked it out. Nine years later, I married the boy because I had to to kind of cover the shame and turn things around. So I had to marry my son's dad. Uh-huh. We got married, had a big wedding. People came to see what's all this about. <laughs> um, had another child with that guy, um, but you, that that marriage was doomed from the very outset because we're two kids don't really know what it means to be married, much less having children, because I had these two boys, mom and dad were very hands-on, so I was just like the carrier, and it was mom and dad that were like the So parents. the marriage was really just for show? Well, the marriage was, was the marriage was meant to rectify this shame, so uh-huh. that it's then presented as, okay, she got pregnant, but they're married, so they're okay and now. did you think ever with your hand on your heart that that would last as a relationship funny enough on the day of the wedding yeah. prior to the wedding and getting everything prepared my friend and i remember we were planning and saying oh this is what i was going to walk down the aisle to in my head i was preparing as if i was going to be the the bell of the ball so it's going to be like prom night and all eyes on me so that was my ideology yeah. so i didn't know the difference between a wedding day and a marriage uh-huh. So what we very said, different things. Let me tell very you, very different very things. Different. Exactly. <laughs> so what we were planning was that I was going to walk down the aisle to a particular song, and everything was going to be fantastic. So when what happened on the actual day, it didn't work out that way in the sense of walking down the aisle. And so I remember her coming to me after the wedding, before as we went to reception and talking. She said, "Why didn't you walk down the aisle to that song we've been planning?" And on that same day, I said to her, "Next time, I will do it better." You mean at your next wedding? I did not think about that. Uh-huh. So anyways, we done the wedding, marriage began, but we were still living with mom and dad. Mm. 
So there was not really a marriage. And even after we moved out every day, because the, the, the boy was there until the second one came five years later, we were still living in Womadad. Even when the second one came, we were still living in Womadad. We moved out. The house was just there to literally go home, sleep, shower, go to work, come back in the night and do the same thing again, literally seven days a week. So there was never that whole instance of marriage. We never communicated. We would sit down. The rare days that we'd actually be in the house together during the daytime and not 11, 12 o'clock at night, it would be the television making that noise because the children were at my parents' place and we were just there. So it wasn't now moving on from there and divorcing them because I, that was doomed from the outset. Divorcing and then remarrying. When I look back, I'm like, nah, that was never... It was never going to work. It was never going to work. It's easy to say with hindsight, isn't it? Though? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, nine years later, then after remarrying to my present husband now, he, I, I was working in Barclays all along and I said, after I finished my sixth form, I said, no more, I don't want to do any more studies. I just want to work. So I started working with Barclays Bank. He came along in 20, 2008 and he said to me, you need to go to university. You love music. You need to study. And I was like, no. Nope. My parents had already gone down this route with me, enrolling me at the University of Greenwich and saying I had to study. But, but why did he say that? Did he, could he see something? He could see something. Passion within you that yes. you weren't expressing. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And he said, you love music. At this time, I was already being, I was, um, being, I was redundant, made redundant with Barclays and I was literally not doing anything because mm -hmm. in my head at that time, 2006, I wanted to tour. I was, no, not 2006, 2008. I was going to be the next Beyonce touring around. And so by the time he came into the scene, I was already, I was redundant for a year plus. So he was very adamant. So he did everything. And that same year, I enrolled at the University of East London to do my undergraduate, where I studied for the music industry management. And so at the end of that course, coming to your question in mm. regards to when did that light bulb moment yeah. come, it was towards the end of that course that I said, you know, what? that's when the penny dropped. I said, I went through all of these things nine years prior for a purpose and that purpose is for me to be able to give back not just giving back to anybody but to give back to other teenage moms that was what I was thinking with no clear direction but that was it and I remember where the penny really really dropped was the last um, assignment at the last semester we were told that we needed to do a business plan and everybody was coming in they wanted to do Sainsbury's BMW you name it and I said, you know what? I said to the lecturer, I said, I don't want to do any of these guys. I want to do a Magdalene. And he said to me, okay, so who is Magdalene? I was mm. like, wow, that's a very good question. Yeah. And at that point, parents had started their own church. So now I'm, I'm now singing again. I'd now taken it that next step. I was now writing songs. I was recording in a studio, taking it to another level as well. I was actually a community. So I was a choir leader at church, but also a community choir director working with women in the community. And finding that many of these women who I was working with, who are much older than me, we came together in the guise of um, choir practice. But many of the times we don't do any choir practice. Many of the times is that I'm being looked upon to give advice for support and all the rest of it. So it was taking a different shape. Mm -hmm. And so I put, he told me, okay, tell me about Magdalene. So I put all of these things down and he set me an assignment again. So okay, break it down. I would give him something. He said, okay, go back, break it down even more and break it. And that's when everything came about. So Magdalene, you were setting down like your own, your own brand, your own sort yeah. of defining what you wanted yeah, to be I, yeah, personally. I did, yeah, I didn't know. Not, I wasn't not Sainsbury's or some big corporate. You exactly. wanted to define your own 
my own brand exactly and then in 2011 when i finally finished my degree i then decided there was this burning passion that i needed to go out and speak to teenage moms but how do i do that where are they because now they had this thing called mother and baby units in my time there was nothing like that so Mm -hmm. i'm like wow it's this new thing called mother and baby units and just like you when you came up the hospital i'm the university were offering alumni support and this building had always been there, but I'd never seen this building before. I was like, wow, this has always been here in the same university campus. And they were offering free support. And if you if you have an idea, that's what they said. I was like, okay, let me grab it. And so that's when I got my first mentor. And I remember sitting down with her and we discussed. And she said, why don't you class yourself as a teenage pregnancy specialist? I was like, that word specialist. Sounds really? good. A consultant. <laughs> that, exactly. That word specialist. I was like, oh my God, I'm not a specialist. I don't have a master's. I don't have a doctorate. And You are what you say you are. <laughs> exactly. And she said, no, no, no. You've gone through it. So you know. And so that's how through her support, I began to put things together and then began to make contact. And I just moved into Croydon then. And f- I was directed through different networks to say, you know, what, this is where the baby, mother and baby units are. Make appointments and go and see them. And that's how we started. I did not know what I wanted. I just wanted to meet with them and tell them my story. Mm. And that was it. So, so Music Relief, in a sense, started from 2011 going out to mother and baby units, going to networking events. It got to a point that I was literally going out to networking events Monday to Friday every day. I'd These were the business children. networking events, yeah. the, the classic, I don't know, what BNI we used to go to, Business yeah, Networking business, International. Exactly. Uh, so I was, I was actively searching them out. So I was going out to various networking events, just wanting to, 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 because I was hungry. I didn't, I knew I was hungry. I knew that I had this idea. I didn't know how it's going to look like, but I needed to connect. What was the the, the characteristics of the person you were looking for? Was he young, pregnant mum, single mum? Yes, young, pregnant, single mum. Yes. But why would they be around business networking? No, 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 no. The business networking was, was more of... How do I take this idea? Yes, I've got this business mentor, but how do I take it to another level? Uh-huh. How do I get exposure even to more young got people? Yeah. But the young people themselves was when I, I contacted the local hospital here, the Croydon University Hospital, and it was the, the matrons that said, actually, you go to these places. But as I was speaking to those matrons, they were the ones like, okay, you have a wonderful um, story. Have you thought of actually expanding it to young people rather mm. than just teenage moms? Because obviously the teenage moms don't get themselves pregnant. Mm. Somebody else had to get them pregnant. So that's how it started. But then as I was talking to them, I was going to this business network because also from the direction of my mentor at that time, to be able to meet with of businesses, business leaders, and especially women, to be able to kind of get ideas and see how they started from their personal stories or whatever led them to start the organization. And so those trips I was going to, tiresome as they may they might they were at that time, but it helped me to kind of develop foundations. To be able to kind of develop the foundation. And the school, the university were offering a lot of um training, support for startups and all the rest of it. So I was taking every opportunity, every opportunity I had. By this time now I had two more children. My mom, like I said, she was there. She just kind of took them on board. So that allowed me to go out. Two five more. Days. That's four children now in total. Four children, yes. Right. Is that what you were up to now? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> just to be clear. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a very quick break just to remind you if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. 
just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So you're taking this all in, you're absorbing mm, everything, all this information, mm, all this mm. business. And but still with no proper guidelines. Uh-huh. But I just knew. You're just learning. I was just learning. But I think at one point I, bo- I became addicted to going out. I was addicted. I was enjoying going uh-huh. out and meeting people, telling them the story. I was over telling people stories because I didn't know how to kind of frame things. But uh-huh. I was going. But it then finally took one particular meeting that I went out to and I met another young lady. What intrigued me was the fact that this is another young lady who looks like me. She's black as well, but she's now the chief executive of um, Islington. I can't remember the whole thing, but in Islington. And I'm like, I'm drawn to you. I don't know why I'm drawn to you, but I'm drawn to you. So she said, okay, let's have a meeting. I remember going to meet with her in her office. She's the chief executive. She's a young lady. I'm like, how did you get there? I want to get to that position Mm -hmm. as well. And she said, I love what you're doing. I'm going to connect you with a lady within the Islington Council who organizes, they used to call it coach for a day to go into various secondary schools in Islington. And then you come in and meet with the young people. So it's not just going to be girls, it's going to be mixed. And then just tell them about your organization. And so that's how, in a sense, it kind of cascaded from there, going out, getting all those experiences, still volunteering as a choir director and choir director in church as well, putting all those informations together. Because for me, in my head, I was, in a sense, developing workshops without actually saying verbally, I am developing workshops. Mm. But that was all those experiences were helping me to develop workshops. All so those what, ex- what, what was the, the theme <laughs> of the early workshops? What were you trying to achieve? And- it was about empowerment. It was always about empowerment. Mm. That was always the mindset. That was always the ideology. Mm. And at this stage, it was predominantly young single mums. No, it was no, no longer just young single moms. It, it was just young people. Young, young people. Yeah, right. it was just okay. young people, yeah. Okay. And at that stage, you were just doing this on a voluntary basis? There was, yeah, so this was, it was all voluntary. You, you so you weren't earning anything at this no, time? No, 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 no. Wow. I wasn't earning at all. It was all voluntary. But loving it, I assume. 100%. Yeah. 100% because I didn't care. I was like, I can actually, I'm doing something that I'm passionate Isn't about. That interesting though, people who fight, who love what they do, mm. they do that primarily and the money comes. The money comes. Second. Somebody said something and that has now, I've now taken that on board. Yeah. He said, when you follow the mission, the money will come. Yeah, it's true. So that's the very early days. When, when did you put some formal structure around what you were doing and, and define what your vision was going to be and your strategy? was when we finally, through support, through an umbrella organization that um, I connected with them and said, okay, this is what I've been doing. Need to kind of formalize it and put things in place. That's when in 2015, and through their guidance, they said, okay, we need to get, you need to get a board of um, directors because it was a limited by guarantee at that time. Mm-hmm. So you need to get a board of directors. You guys need to sit down and begin to stare where it is. Because now at this point, bearing in mind, I said I was working with women as a community choir director. So in my head, in as much as it started as teenage moms, but now working with young people, in my head, music relief was going to be young people, but also working with women. So I remember in one of the early early days, in early, one of the early meetings I had with my now board of directors, trying to define who our target audiences were. And so I was presenting to them, oh, I do the women, I did. So I remember our chair said, you have to have definition. Absolutely, <laughs> otherwise you're all know. over the place. Exactly. Yeah. When they talk about music relief, people need to know 
is it this? Is it that? What is it? Yeah, because if you say, what's the expression? <coughs> if you say you're for everybody, you end up being for nobody. So exactly. you, you've got to be specific as who your target Ex- or exactly. your avatar is, if you like. That is yeah. it. So that's in a sense when that whole thing began to take shape from 2015 and just kind of like, okay, this is where we're going to. And then we've defined it down to the age range. So initially it was 11 to 19. But now when I did my introduction earlier on, I said 11 plus because mm. now it's now extended from 19 to, I won't say indefinite, 25 is a cutoff, but we still help various people. But yeah, so mm. but we, to make it just easier, we just say 11 plus. So is it growing and developing as you anticipate, or is it growing faster than you thought? It's growing and not faster, but growing and developing as uh-huh. I anticipated. Because when I look at each year that goes by since 2015, we've come a long way. In my head, I like things done yesterday, but it's good to go through the process. Of course. And that's part one of the learning. Thing, that's part of the learning. That's something that I was always fighting, even myself as a person, as a musician myself. I wanted things done yesterday. And I remember one of my producers said to me back in 2007, I will never forget. He sat me down and he said to me, Magdalene, is this the right time? And I was very angry for him saying that because I was like, I'm doing this. I'm, well, I fully understand what he meant at that time now because things has to take its natural place and natural progression and everything and so when i look at each year that goes by i see that all the learning all the sleepless nights all those traveling and everything all the pain everything has been worth it yeah it's all part of the learning curve and it also <laughs> makes it all the more worthwhile when you mm-hmm. achieve something mm-hmm. by having gone through that exactly if you get things given to you on a plate shall we say mm. you know without having to strive too much you always want the next thing and the next thing and the next thing exactly. rather than enjoying the process and getting to where you want to go definitely yeah so just talk us through some of the things that um the organization actually does now so now we we're still running workshops which is talk us through a workshop so um one of the workshops is our i guess is our (laughs) award-winning program called more than able Uh so more than able shares its name with our knife crime campaign and we launched this in 2017 in parliament and so since then we've now developed it into a leadership and training program on the night when we launched it we also unveiled some youth ambassadors and so the More Than Able Leadership Training Program is when we, we're primarily for secondary school kids, year sevens right up to year tens. We don't do the year elevens because of GCSEs. And it's a six weeks, six weeks intervention and prevention program tailored around the issues of knife crime. Mm-hmm. And we have curriculums, four particular curriculums that we work through. And so it's one day a week that we go into the schools. The schools identify these young people who they feel are at risk because that's part of the remit that we're looking at. Young people who are already involved, maybe early stages or at risk of becoming involved with criminal activities. Mm-hmm. And so we go in there following those curriculum that we have. And at the end of it, what we do, we always celebrate these young people by having an end of project showcase and we give them certain and just kind of make a song and dance about it for people to kind of celebrate and get from family and friends and local leaders from the community to come in and celebrate them so that they feel good about themselves. What are they actually doing within the workshop? Obviously, these are things to empower them and make Mm -hmm. them feel good, Mm -hmm. not going down the wrong path, for example. Are these musical workshops? They're creating a a piece of music or collaborative pieces? what What they're actually doing is working towards an end goal, which is the creation of music. Right. So everything that they work on, so I give you an example. So um, in one of the sessions, we look at um, role models. 
and we try to identify role models, people that they can see themselves in and stuff like that, but also looking at this particular role model, his or her life story, and how they've been able to transform the negativity that mm-hmm. they were into into something positive, and look at the learning that this many people, these young people can look can get from it, and the transferable skills, and also helping them to understand the dangers by doing certain things that they're exposing themselves to. Because if they feel like, okay, I'll give you an example. One of the sessions that we had, we looked at um, um, this young a young man, 14 years old, coming from a single f- um, parentage, primarily mom. Mom is struggling, no money and everything. So he's 13, 14, feeling that, yeah, he's the man of the house. He has siblings. And um, he get caught up in this life of um, crime. And it, it, first of all, came about very simple enough. Somebody else comes, a groomer comes in. Oh, just take this for me and go and give it to that person. Yeah. And that's how it starts. So he innocently, and I'll give you 20, 20 pounds. And it starts like that and it continues and it continues. So he takes it, go and give it to the other person. But what this groomer, he, what he doesn't know is that this groomer has arranged for someone to come and rob him. So obviously when he gets robbed... You're owing this person, so you're now tied in. You can't come out. Right, right. And so that's how it just kind of builds. And, and then something happens. He tries to run away, but he can't because now they've now kind of, in a sense... Got their hooks into him. Got their hooks into yeah. him, but also more so the family members. And they're threatening to rape sister, younger sister, or mother. What do you do? It's easy to say, oh, if it's not happening to you, I'll do this and that. But when it's happening, it's to, you, happening to you, what even, do you do? So that, exactly. So when that table is turned on them, at the beginning, they were very verbal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you could hear the penny drop. Yeah, yeah. So all that learning, what then happens from that learning is that they then put it together into, it then forms part of a lyrics of a song that they then produce in a studio. Mm. So it's not um, it's not a song that we're going to say, let's capitalize on and sell, but it's, it's just for them to 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 kind of kind of basically solidify their learning and say, okay, this is the end piece of it. And then they produce it in a song. Some may produce it in a song. Some may say, okay, they just want to do like a presentation on the showcase day. So depending on what they're comfortable with, but it's very, very much part of them so that they are taking ownership of it and they are learning from it. And so if we're able to impact them, even no matter how little, that they go away and take something away from that, that for us is... That's the difficult thing, I suppose. How do you actually measure the success of the workshop? Okay, they've come out, they've learned some stuff, some very valuable <laughs> life lessons. They've produced a nice piece of music and mm-hmm. they're very proud and they get back the certificate and the applause mm-hmm. of their, mm-hmm. you know, their, their fellow brethren, if you like. How do you keep in touch with them and monitor their, their life going forward and keep in touch that, with them to again, make sure they're not coming off the beaten track? And that is now down to the school because obviously we don't just come in and then we do it and finish. Okay, that's it, Bob's your uncle, we're gone. Mm. It's about that follow-up and the school, we, we, this, we, we depend on the school on working with us to ensure that we have that follow-up. But because many of the workshops we do are local in regards to Scroydon, you tend to see some of them on the streets and some of them are very like, hey, miss, how are you doing? And all mm-hmm. those kind of things. But obviously, in regards to monitoring, they, we do give them that feedback form and they, they say all the right things. But to, in the large scale of things, how do you really monitor it? it it's now down to that individual mm. learning to say, this is what I've learned. How am I going to ensure that that learning becomes part of me and I don't go down that route? We can only do what we can do. Yeah, at the end of the day, you can only, as I say, take a horse to water. You can but give you them the education it. and the learning and then they have to make valid exactly. decisions for themselves. Exactly. And hopefully they make the right, the right decisions exactly. or they're less likely to make bad decisions mm-hmm. because they've mm-hmm. got some 
some learning mm-hmm. from from your courses. Have you have you got good experiences of kids who've gone through your your workshops and have gone on to become sort of youth leaders and taking community leadership uh, roles? Because many of these workshops, like especially this particular project, is still relatively new. Uh-huh. They are still evolving and growing but from some of the feedbacks that we've heard from them it's been positive but it's something that if you were to come and ask me the same question i don't know two years down the line i I can then say to you (laughs) (laughs) i can say to you yes this is definite these are the kind of people that have come back to us but at the present we hear from them but it's about okay this is one thing you're saying but let me actually see the actions and see what you've done you've gone ahead and and done. But one of the other things that I could, could definitely put our hands on is I talked about the ambassadors, the unveiling of ambassadors. So this group of young people are people who are, in a sense, the youth face of the organization. And over the years, they can see the impact of being what it means to be an ambassador. But bearing in mind, these are young people. So young people are gonna always going to do what young people do. Yeah. But you can, when you listen to them, their banter and everything, you can hear from them that you can, that there is an impact, there is a positive change and they, they understand what young people are still going to push got to the come boundaries. From, isn't it? You've got to, it's got to go viral. You've got to teach three or four people. Exactly. They've got to teach another one or two and weeks. They are, they are very, they are good in saying, so it's not a case that they are, they become dummies of Magdalene in a sense and this yeah. is what Magdalene wants you to say. No, no, no. It's a case of them saying it for themselves and using their own words and using their own experiences to be able to verbalize it, mm, mm. yeah. And do they come back to you with positive feedback, you know, afterwards, you know, that they've learned so much, you've changed their mindset and they can see there's an alternative way than them going down the, the gangs De- and the crime and the drugs. Definitely, definitely. Classic example is the award that they won from mm. the Global Youth Awards just two weeks ago. And when they went there, I, I didn't go with them. They had other people there with them. But when they went there and I remember I got a phone call, I was screaming on the phone and I said, let me speak to them. And I was like, do you guys understand all the shouting and the screaming? And you could hear that they were excited. Mm. And when they talk about it, oh, we are awards winners. Hearing that, that sense of pride that we have. Do they not get outside of this organization? Have they got many opportunities to sort of show off how good they are? And, you know, in doing wonderful things within the school environment. Within the school environment, they are, we make it clear to the school, we try to engage with the schools as much as we possibly can, all their schools, that they are ambassadors. And so when there's something happening on any event that they've had or they're in the press, the school tends to know and the school wants to show off that, oh, Because it's so important to celebrate the kids' achievement. And if they're any, you know, getting it here is wonderful, but they need to get it on a regular basis in the school, in the home, if that's possible. There was a perfect example of when we were interviewed in the guardian so one of the ambassadors the school found out about the school was so happy about it that it, they told her to do um she had to write a blog and the school put it out for the whole school to kind of like to highlight her and they were like anytime you guys are doing anything we need to be we need to know so because for them obviously it's also a pr thing like one of our students is doing great stuff and but it's good. It's yeah, good. It's fantastic. Yeah. So what other things you've got going going on? Um, so we presently run um, fencing for, yes. Okay. Is that wise? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're yeah. doing fencing. So okay. that's a provision that we offer as an after school um, club. In fairness, school. I'm joking. I mean, obviously, that is a very disciplined sport. It is know. very disciplined. Yeah. It's initially that what you just said that was my initial reaction <laughs> I was like fencing <laughs> who came up with that idea? Crime? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. but 
fencing, I've gone through it. I've never done it before, but when I went for the training, I was like, wow. Oh, wow. It's seriously it is athletic. Seriously, you and it's good, ex- it's good, good exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also it's very disciplined. Uh-huh. Fencing is not as you think because you've, but obviously because being young people, they don't actually have the actual swords until you train to that level. They get plastic ones. But the fact remains, it's a disciplined sport. It's comparable to mental chess. And so for me, when the opportunity came up, I was like, you know, we can't pass this up. We have to get trained up and be able to deliver this. So like I said, we deliver it in primary schools as an after-school club provision. It's that whole transferable skills that we are teaching the kids. And you have many of the parents signed up their children. I remember the first one, I, I said, let me actually go in and see the coaches deliver. We had a good amount of young people there. And these are primary school kids. You're talking between the ages of t- eight and seven to nine and some of the parents were there and they were they really loved it yeah i think all these things i mean fencing isn't the one that came to top of mind boxing is one of the Mm. obvious ones a lot of kids go down that Mm -hmm. route you know athletics sport you know any anything like that where there's a martial arts is also another very good one Mm. any form of kickboxing or taekwondo but not only is it good from a self-defense point of view but the discipline Mm -hmm. and the education that you can get Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. from those sort of um skills is, is, is very very important exactly but fencing wasn't one that came top of my mind, I must admit, but no. <laughs> yeah. Let's <laughs> yeah. see how that goes. No, that's fantastic. So it, it's going according to plan. You're going organisation. Where where are you funded from? How, how do you get your funding? Um, local council, Croydon mm-hmm. Council, Awards for All, Groundworks, various places where you get the you, you get all you check for the various funding streams and lottery at all the big lottery it? yes well, that was our first funders uh-huh. yeah we just apply comic relief we've applied to them several times is obviously when you put your application through if it's strong enough you get the money if yeah. it's not you move on and you keep I think you've you got a strong applying. case <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I guess the, I was going to say I guess the trouble is there's other people doing similar, similar work similar thing exactly so you've got to differentiate yourself somehow but I think with your story and what you're doing in this in this area mm. it, you should have a strong case yeah yeah. But, yeah. Um, so I was I was actually having a meeting with um, somebody from the Royal Society of Arts just before you mm-hmm. came a few hours before you came in and we were talking about it, and we are talking about that long term relationship because one thing that I personally have noticed especially in the climate that we're in with the issues of knife crime and youth violence you find a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon this is because it's very topical so let's all jump on it but when you're working with young people and you're hearing from young people they are not jumping on it the way we the adults are jumping on because for them it's like okay next thing and so you have to understand if you're working with a target group of people who are not aligned with what your vision is as an organization then there is something wrong it's about understanding who your target audience is. Because if you're user-led like we are, then we need to be able to work with them in order for us to be able to have a greater impact. But to do so, it's about building a relation, building relationships. So the long-term. It's a long-term not thing. It's for, not a yeah. short-term thing. It's not for instant gratification. So what you were saying about building up uh, the business yourself, you yeah. know, is learning as you go and building up. The, from the foundations up and then getting the, the rewards and the benefits as, as you do it. Exactly. Instant gratification is nice, but it doesn't last, does it? It does not last, no. It doesn't last. No. And for the kids, it won't last either. Mm. We were talking about role models as well before, pr- mm-hmm. a little bit. It, I mean, first of all, who are your role models? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I know you said you had some musical ones I read somewhere. Um, uh. And I, I checked out some of the uh, the artists 
who you said you were role models, and I, I never heard of them before. I must be honest with you, it was just outside of my musical comfort zone. But m- m- many of them have changed yeah. <laughs> from the time I wrote that. In the sense of many, I've seen them as role models. I've since um, moved on from those ones. But I think, when I think in regards to musical, I see people like Mary J. Blige. Yeah. She's an American R&B singer. For me, the reason why I mention her, because our stories are not similar in regards to teenage pregnancy, but the struggles, and even up to recently, still that struggle, especially hers is under the marital issues, and having to still smile when you are going through pain, and having to still say, you know what, I say to people when I do coaching, and delivering and various things. Imagine you are wearing heels, you are walking on heels. That's the best way to kind of put your head above the waters. So I see this woman who is going through pain and she's able to release that pain through the lyrics of her song. But then when she sits down, when you look at the imaging of her, one of her albums, the front image, she sat as a, as a queen on a throne. So that's in it, like they say, picture, a picture tells a thousand words. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. And then the back of the CD, she sat almost um, in a very sexy outfit saying, yes, this is what has happened to me, but I'm still hot. I still got it. That for me, again, is powerful. I'm not saying that this is what I did, but what I am saying is that the message behind this is phenomenal. Because that is power. That is a woman. She's a woman, but that is an individual standing up to say, you know what, what has happened to me? It's not, I'm not going to allow it to kill me. Doesn't mean that she doesn't have bad days, but she's just saying to the world and to herself, most importantly, that I am fine. You have to take everything one day at a time, not at the pace that the world wants you to take it. Yeah, and you mustn't waver because as you say, you'll have good days and bad days. But if you've got your vision, your guiding principles in Mm -hmm. life, Mm -hmm. okay, as you say, you'll you'll go up and down some days, but just keep focused and have the honesty and the dignity to, to, you know, bear with it. Exactly. And then you'll come through the other side. Exactly. Everybody has struggles. It's just how we all deal with them and and present. We all have the, the... the image we like to present and we, what's going on behind the image. I say to everybody that we all wear, we all wear masks. Of course we do. We all wear a mask. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Even now I can be, I'm wearing a mask, but because is this Magdalene on a day to day? Is this Magdalene that is the chief executive that is having this interview? So every one of us has a mask, but it's about marrying these two personalities, identities, however way you want to class it together to say, okay, who is this person? What are these difficulties? How am I going to allow this? Am I, am I going, not how, am I going to allow whatever issues I'm going through influence? And to knock me off my Exactly. Course. So it, it was happening to me, even up until recently. But what I'm, one thing I've understood is that the persona that I present as that founder chief executive outside has now began to kind of rub over my personal life that I'm now saying, okay, the way I, I foresee and envisage the organization, it now is now rubbing over in the personal life that I have to now begin to put relationships 
in the same, almost in the same context as the business relationships, even down to husband or wife relations. So that that way, I'm no longer breaking down for certain things anymore. You have to, what like they say, what won't break you will make you. Mm-hmm. So it's having to de- develop strength and saying, okay, how do I pick myself up yeah. and carry on? I noticed in some of the, uh, one of the videos I saw on your website that um, the footballer, Wilfred Zahar, yeah. is, I don't know if he's... Um, He's a supporter, obviously, of what you do. Yeah, he 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 so kindly did a video for us. Yeah, how we present that is how we word it. We have to be mindful of how it's said, in a sense of Wilfred Zaha supporting us. He we approached him and we said to him, "We're having this event. Would love for you." So through his um, um, player liaison officer. He did this wonderful video for us. Mm. Yeah. So was he associated with the organization or was he just for that? It was for that purpose, okay. yeah. And obviously, he's a role model yes. for, for many youngsters, particularly yes. in his footballing capacity. Yes. Do the kids who come here also have their own role models, do you think? Or do they they all- have their own role models. Some very questionable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, they all have their role model and everyone is different. So where we would mention the likes of Stormzy's and Crepton Conan's. It's not necessarily for them. Mm. They have the people that they listen to and who they feel are role models. Like I said, some are questionable and you wonder, how is this individual a role model for you? Mm. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's difficult to get the right role models exactly. coming across, isn't it? Because there's a lot of unhealthy social media going on mm-hmm. out there and mm-hmm. kids get drawn into all sorts of things. Well, I can see our time is running out. <laughs> We're being, being overrun by other people in the hall here. So um, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. how can people find out more about the organization? How can they get in touch with you? How can they see you on social media and all the rest of it? Well, they can go direct first point of call, go to the website, which is music hyphen or dash relief. I always say co- like comic relief.com. So music dash relief.com um, follow us on all socials um, Facebook it's music relief one Instagram music under low under lower underscore relief Twitter music relief UK it's always music relief and your book and my book from shame to strength music saved me that can be found on Amazon if people want to connect through to me personally, I think LinkedIn is the best bet to connect with me because that's the kind of like the professional uh-huh. hat. I tend not to say Facebook for my prof- um, for professionality because for me, Facebook, it's more of, especially my personal account, it's just, I do whatever on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come to LinkedIn and get the <laughs> professional side of Magdalene. <laughs> and during the course of my research, I also listened to some of your music that you uh, put out there and I was wow. I, I was blown away. I thought it was amazing. Oh, well, wow, the, thank your you. Your voice is beautiful. <laughs> the uh, the songs and the structure of the songs I think was lovely. <laughs> Why aren't you the next Beyonce? What's, what are you doing here? Well, <laughs> I, I, I did say to you I was made redundant with uh, Barclays from 2006 and sat at home for a year plus because at that time, 2004, Destiny's Child had just split up and oh, Beyonce was just <laughs> Beyonce was just becoming a solo yeah. artist. So for in my head, I was going to be that next Beyonce. <laughs> but yeah, that's why I said when you talked about role models, I said mine has changed over time. But I still sing. I sing primarily at church now. Uh-huh. That's where I feel very um, comfortable in. I do get invited in different churches to come and do. This is doing solo work or as part of a choir, a gospel uh, no, choir? In church is 
as a choir leader yeah. in the choir, uh-huh. when I go out to various places as Magdalene, so it's still gospel, but as Magdalene coming to sing, um, on rare, rare occasions I get invited to charity events. So now I've become very comfortable in going to sit down charity events and then I'm being called upon to sing. Whereas beforehand, I was always jumping from one open mic to the other, going from one event to the other. I think with time and everything, I was like, no, you begin to know what you really want. And so I was like, no, that's not for me. <laughs> so yeah, it's, and now I'm very comfortable in being invited as a special guest to come and sing at a sit down. Oh, wonderful. Do you have any plans to, to record anything? I've been saying that for the last two years. <laughs> but I think what's happened is that Music Relief has really kind of consumed my time. I'm now enrolled to start my master's. And I'm actually starting class tomorrow. So what, what, what are you doing that in? International business management. Uh-huh. So that's going to consume even more time. I've, I do really want to go back to the studio, especially when you're with the young people in the studio. And you're like, but yeah, <laughs> once, always, once a musician, always a musician. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Not, that's never going to leave you. It's never going to. No. That's who I am. So yeah. It's yeah. brilliant. So we're at the time of the uh, conversation, which I ask all my guests towards the end of our conversation. If they can think of one or two places that are particularly personal to them, that they love, could be a walk, a place to relax, a museum, a library, a restaurant, whatever. So Magdalene, tell us the place that or places that uh, you're going to recommend to us. Um, the first place is um, South Bank. I remember some years back, I was taken there at night just by the river. It's absolutely gorgeous. Agreed. Absolutely gorgeous. London is a beautiful place, but they had never been there before. So when I went there that night, nightlife in London is phenomenal. And you wouldn't even know that this is 10, 11 o'clock at night, but it was just beautiful. It's one of my favorite places. From, I've not been back since. I keep yeah, saying I'm going to go, go back. This is over the 10 Royal years. Festival Hall, right down exactly. to where they sell the books and you've got all the buskers and the restaurants. Oh, it's and just the river. buzzing. It's, it's beautiful. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. That's the best time to go there is at night. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you enjoy it. In the summer as well, when it's yeah. nice and you can walk In the daytime, yeah. it's just hustle and bustle and traffic and noise, yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, and the next then one? Then the sec- next one, I guess, because we're in Croydon. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't had one in Croydon yet. <laughs> Go for it. You're right here in Croydon. Croydon is in London, but it's almost on the outskirts of it. So you have a lot of um, um, wooded areas mm-hmm. and so many places around where I personally live as well. There's a lot of wooded areas and it just feels like as if you're in the countryside and within a few minutes, it just feels like you're in a different place that you can just go there and sit down in the summer. Again, it's phenomenal, daytime or nighttime. Where's that? Here in Croydon. Anywhere in particular? Um, so there's a place just by um, where I used to live off um, Mitcham Park. It's mm-hmm. called Mitcham Park, so it's not too far on your way towards Mitcham. And then also around Ash, um, Addiscombe as well. Addiscombe. Very, very gorgeous because it's very um, leafy. And it just feels like you're just in the countryside and you just go into certain of the parks there. And it's very relaxing. It's very peaceful. And just bearing in mind, just a few yards down the road is hustle and bustle of yeah. cars and everything. London has some amazing green spaces yeah. and yeah. parks and open spaces mm-hmm. and heaths and things. And it's amazing. And I have to get some of those guys yeah. who manage those open spaces on the yeah. podcast because they're very, very valuable as well for they everything do we do. phenomenal work. Yeah. 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 Cool. Once again, thank you very much for a couple of uh, very inspirational places to go and visit. We'll add those to our list. Thank you. And uh, I'll take you up on your offer. Come back here in a couple of years' time yes, and see, please see do. how we're doing. Please do. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. Thank I'm sorry you. to have scared you when I walked in the uh, the door that says no entry and scared half your office <laughs> to death, especially as there's been some weird bloke hanging around outside for the last week. Sorry for that. That's okay. Thank you for, uh, for being 
part of the show, your Thank London you. legacy. Thank You've you. clearly got your own legacy and you're leaving a legacy with all these wonderful kids and all the great work that you're doing so we're very grateful to you for that thank you and for uh, for your time today so thank you very much thank you it's lovely to have you here thank you every week here at your london legacy we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful london-based story we hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you if so the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.